I think we would, after hearing what we've just heard, the call to worship, and in the, the reading, I think we would agree that there's probably no greater treasure to the Christian than the Word of God. I think a good argument could be made that prayer is the most precious and powerful weapon that we have as militant saints, but what would prayer be if we didn't know the God to whom we prayed? How would would we know that He hears us? How would we know if He's going to answer us or not if we didn't have His Word? Try to put yourself into the shoes of what we know are many deceived millions who subscribe to another man-made religion who routinely offer up prayers, very often more consistent, more fervent than even we do, and yet they do so to gods or a God that will never respond. They've never seen, they've never heard anything from Him. They don't even know that He's... That it's out there. Their whole lives are spent reaching out into nothing, after nothing, grasping nothing, drawing nothing back, and yet they continue. Very often those types of people will walk away satisfied that they have performed this ritual that they call prayer, even though they know that they leave empty because they have no true God to answer their prayers. A Christian is not interested in that sort of thing. A Christian is not interested in empty rituals. A Christian is not satisfied with forms. A Christian is a person who wants to know his God. And we, Christians, have such a God. We have a God who has revealed Himself to us in His Word. We serve a God who commands us to pray, teaches us to pray through examples in the Scriptures, tells us in His Word that He does hear our prayers. He has kept records of His own hearing our prayers and answering the prayers of His people in His Word and has preserved that Word down to the ages so that we would have it. He wants us to know Him. And a Christian, that's what a Christian wants. We want to know our God. We have a God who wants us to know Him, and He has proven that He wants us to know Him by the very existence of His Word. Now, two weeks ago, we summarized the primary message of the Revelation, the last book of God's Word, with three main points. This present age is an age of warfare for the church, The enemy of our souls is going to use every weapon at his disposal to ruin the work of Christ and his kingdom in us and in the world. But Christ Jesus has already won the final victory. He's currently ruling and reigning over all of the events of human history for his glory, for the good of his people. He wrote the script. He mapped it out. It's all working out according to his providence and his plan. And he will return again to take us to be with him. And I think that we would agree that that is essentially the message of the whole Bible. The message of the Revelation is the message of all of Scripture. From Genesis 3 onward, we see the people of God are strangers and aliens in this world. We are hated by that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan because we belong to Christ who is His archenemy. 
But, that, but God has entered into history in the person of His Son, has conquered the enemy, and is going to return again to take us to Himself. The message of all of Scripture is summarized in the message of the Revelation and vice versa. Now, what is our job until the time that Christ returns? We hold up the light of God's truth, God's Word. We hold fast through suffering. We hold out until the end. What is the job of the Christian? We imbibe the Word of God. We abide in the Word of God. We seek to have the Word of God abide in us. We live according to the Word of God. We open our mouths and proclaim the Word of God because we are the only people in the universe who have a God that we can proclaim who has revealed Himself to us in His Word. And so we have here at the close of the New Testament, the final portion of God's inscripturated Word, what Matthew Henry calls a solemn ratification of the contents, not only of the revelation, but of all of Scripture. It is a confirmation of the Word of truth which we are to uphold. So what we did two weeks ago is we began to walk through Matthew Henry's 13 points of solemn Ratification, 13 ways in which the revelation and thus the entire Bible is confirmed and sealed to our consciences. We saw first that the Word of God is confirmed primarily and supremely because of its source, namely God Himself. We can read, believe, stand on, and proclaim the message of this book because it is the Word of God. It comes from God. God is the primary source. Now today we, we're going to move to, if you're thinking in terms of an outline, the second point in the second subheading in that major heading regarding the source of Scripture, moving from the primary source to now the secondary or mediated sources. Now this doesn't imply any reduction or lessening in what has already been said about the divine nature of the Scriptures when we assert that there is a primary source and there are secondary or mediary sources. It's just another layer of the same truth. Namely, the Word of God comes from God, but God has chosen to use intermediaries. That is, uh, created instruments through which He would bring His Word to us. And that's what I want you to see this morning, that the revelation and indeed all of Scripture is confirmed, ratified, and sealed to our consciences through the secondary means of ministerial integrity and ecclesiastical authority. So two main headings. The first is ministerial integrity. The revelation of Jesus Christ and all of the Word of God is ratified and vindicated to the consciences of men in a secondary sense by ministerial integrity. That is, the upright and moral character of those chosen to deliver it. Now, from this portion of the Revelation, we could ask, who are these ministers? Who has God chosen to deliver this Word to us? And we could see, first, God's angel. In verse 6, he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel. God sent His 
angel. God's angel. You know, the word angel means messenger. So this is God's messenger. The, the messenger owned by and commissioned by God. So we see God remains the primary source. But the angel is a secondary source, an intermediary, a, a means by which the Word comes from God. I get my water from a spring, but the means by which I get it is a pump and a hose and a spigot. But the source remains the same. Here we see this means, an angel. And then there's this human agent, which is John. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. It was John who put pen to paper or quill to papyrus. However, he wrote these things down. It was John, a, a Jewish man who lived in the first century. He had a brother named James. His dad's name was Zebedee. He, he used his hand and took a quill and he wrote down the things that we're reading here. His mother was quite involved in the ministry of Christ herself, if you pay attention to the Gospels. That man in his own native tongue, his, his native language with his handwriting using his mind, put pen to paper and wrote down the things that he heard and saw. John did. So the, the ministers that we're talking about here specifically are this angel, or I think we could say angels throughout the book we see multiple, and John. Both, angel, both the angel and John are employed as ministers in the service of conveying the revelation of God to the saints. Now, what is a minister? What do I mean by a minister? Well, the Holy Spirit uses several words that are variously translated in our English Bibles that help us to see how God Himself views the angels and the apostles and the prophets, those men that were all those created beings through which God has chosen to give His Word to us. Ministers. Hebrews 1.7, the angels, he says or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels are referred to as ministers. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? That same word is used of Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.5. He's your messenger and minister to my need. The same Greek word and they're translated the same in English. And Paul refers to himself in Romans 15, 16, as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. What did Paul do to the Gentiles? He proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, that, that word used in those passages is more like a formal public officer, one who has been commissioned or employed to serve on behalf of someone above them to serve another. In Revelation 22, 9, the angel also refers to him as, or himself as, a fellow servant. In the Greek it would be, I think you'll recognize this, sundulos. And you know the Apostle Paul very often calls himself a slave or a servant, a, a doulos of Christ Jesus, specifically in his apostolic duties. And so this angel and the Apostle both consider themselves slaves in the service of Christ, specifically with reference to conveying His Word to His people. I'm just a slave. I'm a, I'm a fellow servant with you. And then there's another word that's used in the New Testament. Diakonos. We get our word deacon from it. It means a servant. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister, a, a deacon, one who serves according to the gift of God's grace. Colossians 1, 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister 
Now that's the English word minister, but it's a different underlying word in the original. But it means a deacon, a servant. So we have these terms that are used interchangeably for angels and men, all of them servants of God with reference to their work in bringing the message of God to the people of God. And again, in our English Bibles, we might just see the word minister all over the place. And all of these ideas come together to, to give us this picture. The angel and John here are both ministers, servants employed by God, slaves to God and to Christ. They have one duty here, bring the word. Deliver the Word to the people. They're ministers. Now, we're arguing that the Word of God is confirmed by ministerial integrity. I think we're aware, especially in cases of men like Balaam, that God can use men of less than stellar integrity to deliver His actual Word. So why why would we come to this angel and John and think of them or any of the apostles, any of the the authors of Scripture, and consider them of a more noble character than Balaam. God could have used any creature, but He chose certain men, certain creatures, angels and men. And I would argue that he, He chose ministers of integrity. First, consider the angels, which are employed in this work of bringing us the Word of God. The angels that remain in the official service of God, like the one here, are called in in 1 Timothy 5, the elect angels. This means that they form a number of elect angels that were kept from the fall and sealed in their moral state so as to never be capable of a rebellion again. That's why according to God's standards, they're also called the holy angels. They are morally, ethically, Perfect. Now, being morally and ethically perfect, they cannot sin. They cannot do any other than what Yahweh Himself commands them to do. And we see this throughout the Scriptures. They stand in His service day and night. They wait on Him to answer His every beck and call. They, They come and they go and they sent and are returned in strict and absolute obedience to God. They are unable to waver as the holy angels. We also see an example of angelic integrity in verse 9 of this portion of Scripture. Begin in verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, this is the angel, he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. This angel is upright, he's holy, no no doubt majestic in appearance and strength, worthy of awe and wonder by men. And we, we can confirm this throughout the Scriptures. And yet, he will not allow himself to receive any worship. He, he puts a stop to it immediately. Now many of us here, we very often feel that craving for attention and praise. When we are congratulated, we cherish that little piece of what we consider to be worship. We know how hard it is to die to ourselves and to just point to God. Just turn the direction away from ourselves and to God. Yet this angel doesn't even flinch. There's no no gap in in the narrative. He immediately says, stop. I'm a servant. Get up. Don't worship me. And we saw the same thing back in chapter 19 and verse 10. He he exemplifies His upright and moral character by 
disallowing any worship. We also know that the Apostle John was a man of integrity. After laboring all through the night in prayer, Christ came forth and chose this John to be one of His apostles. John in Scripture is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. You say, well, John just said that because that's, he wanted everybody to know that. Well, that's, that's the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. We very often call him the apostle of love based on his writings. We know from the Last Supper and his body language that he truly loved the Lord Jesus in a way that would make most of us men uncomfortable. Laid back on his chest. And the Lord didn't say, scoot over. But he allowed that. John was the only disciple at the foot of the cross. And Jesus looked down from the cross, saw John and his mother, and he, he essentially says, Mom, stay close to John. John, take care of my mom. That's an upright man for the Lord to say, I'm giving my mother and her care into your hands. John, as one of the twelve apostles, was recipient of promises like John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 16, 13. The Spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. John received that promise as an apostle. It was that same apostolic reception which the apostle Paul referenced when he says, "...we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God." These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. He's talking about the apostles. We have a message from God. And John would have been in that number as one of the twelve apostles. At the outset of the message that we have in the Revelation, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I don't know how you want to describe that other than overwhelmed with, overcome by, and full of a meditation given by the Holy Spirit of God, I, I saw and I'm writing to you the things that I saw. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And so not only do we have every reason to believe that this man John was a man of the utmost integrity in his character, but here he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, he wrote as one carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. Integrity. Now some people say, well, I don't believe the Bible because it was written by men. As Christians, we would respond in, in full honesty, that's correct. It was. It was men who put pen to paper. We, we concede that fact. We don't have to hide that. But, but just notice the honesty of the authors and the way that it's written. In verse 8 of our, of our text, I, John, am one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. How embarrassingly honest is John as he writes this to say, I did it again. Twice he spoke. The first time I worshipped, he said, don't do that, worship God. And then... I did it again. I fell down and worshipped Him again. He had to tell me again, get up, don't worship me. I succumbed to that. He doesn't hide it. He tells us exactly what was going on. And, and all of Scripture bears this same testimony. If you, if you just read the Bible, is, is not all Scripture breathed out by God? When you read it, do you not recognize 
the inspiration of it. It's not all Scripture written by holy men carried along by the Holy Spirit. When you read the Bible and you're alone, just ask yourself, or when it's being read here, just ask, think. Do these seem to be the writings of men who are aiming at some sort of self-deception? Are these men winning something by recording the things that they have written? John is writing from the island of Patmos. He's exiled for the testimony of Christ and the Word of God. He, he, what does he get from this? Do we ever get the hint as we read the Scriptures that these men were building some sort of religion upon their own personalities, trying to elevate themselves above their fellow men? Do we ever get the idea that this is just some scheme that man has exalted to exalt himself like we see in every other human religion of the world? Never. Of course not. From cover to cover, the Scriptures reveal the wickedness that we all know lies in the hearts of even the best of men and makes no effort to cover it up. Everything that we want to cover up, Scriptures reveal. It, it lays it out there, open. Unlike any other religion in the world, Christianity and, and thus the Word of God being penned by human beings makes no effort to cover over the natural guilt and defilement of the human race but it cries out from the beginning of the book to the end of the book that mankind cannot fix himself, that God has done what men could not do in and through His own Son. That is the message of Scripture. You wrecked it. You ruined it. God Almighty had to intervene into the situation to save you and us all because none of us, not one of us, could fix our situation. God did it. So the revelation of Jesus Christ is, and thus all of the Word of God, is ratified, it's vindicated to our consciences by this secondary means. Not primary, not the utmost, not absolute, but secondarily by the upright moral character of those that God has chosen to bring it to us. Again, that doesn't negate the fact that it is God's Word. But God has chosen to use ministers of integrity. And then the second heading is ecclesiastical authority. Ecclesia, as you know, means church. And so we, we see here it's not just a select handful of men that come and, and add their character as confirmation to the revelation of Jesus Christ, but the entire church of Christ in all times and in all places adds its testimony. Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. So there's this invitation that's given by the Holy Spirit and the bride, that is the church, to come to Christ. Now, what gives rise to this invitation? Why would the Spirit and the bride respond in this way with, with come? Well, the answer is everything written up into this point. Everything leads up to this. The, we can almost picture the church looking at the book, reading all the way up to verse 16. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And then the church looks up and says, Come! We've got Him! Come to Him! It's based on the validity of all that's been written. This invitation is essentially because we confirm this Word. We give an invitation to all who would hear. 
Come to this Jesus. Come to this King before it's too late. The things that are written are true. And He is going to come and bring judgment and recompense upon His enemies. The Spirit and the church testify with a joint testimony that this Word is true. And it compels men to come to Christ before the end. Now, when we hear that phrase, ecclesiastical authority, sometimes that makes us a little nervous. It sounds scary. We, we, we think we're about to be forced into the cattle cars of cult life. Be forced to do things we're all going to do. Before long, we're all going to have man buns and be cuffing our pants at the bottom. When we hear ecclesiastical authority. But, but that's, church authority is a real thing. Church, that's you. It's not me. It's you. The church adds its testimony to the validity of God's Word and that actually holds weight. It's secondary. It's not primary, but it does hold weight. Now, if the church is held to some truth from ancient times, that's not irrelevant in determining what the truth is. Okay, that's not our final end. Well, the church said, well, the church father said, that's not the final point, but it's not irrelevant. Now, is it because of the people? No, it's because of the Spirit. The Spirit and the bride say come. In other words, it's the true church of Jesus Christ filled with His Spirit, acting according to His Word, which bears ecclesiastical authority. And it's that testimony that urges us to hold fast to the Word. The true church filled with Christ's Spirit, according to Christ's words. We've already seen Christ is with His churches. Chapter 1, verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Christ is with His churches. Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ has given heavenly authority to His churches. Matthew 18, 18 to 20, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's Him by His Spirit with us that gives this authority. In 1 Corinthians 5, we see the keys of authority exercised in church discipline. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, why, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? In other words, you've got your own little sphere of, of, of work and, and sovereignty here in the church. You don't need to go out there. You can, you can conduct your own business. Why? Because Christ is with us. There is an authority in a true, spirit-filled church acting according to the Word of Christ. The Christian church is its own separate sphere of authority. And under Christ and his, with His Word, it bears its own sword, the sword of the Spirit. We have a sword too. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we have our own keys, not given to us by any human authority, but given to us by God. The Christian church bears its own testimony to the truth of God by the Spirit that is given to it, the church. And this is why doctrine, Christian doctrine, never changes. It's never changed from the beginning of, of Scripture and time to now. It's never changed. It's never, never altered. And this is why creeds and confessions are so useful. This is why commentaries are so useful. 
Jesus Christ, the Lord of His church, never meant for every generation to come along and each individual saint to do the work of getting by himself or herself alone in a closet and try to reinvent the wheel of sound doctrine all by themselves. He, he never intended that. Now again, this, this authority is not inerrant or infallible. And it's not our primary source of truth, but the church is a secondary means by which Christ has ensured that the saints in every generation are always growing to maturity. We, we confirm and carry along the torch of truth that has been handed down to us so that the bride of Christ doesn't start in every generation as an infant, but has been being built up and, and strengthened and brought to maturity for now close to 2,000 years. And this same is true for all of Scripture. In ancient times, those who spoke the Word of God had their role confirmed to the community of God's people by signs and wonders. In the law, God gave the nation of Israel, the entire covenant community, the standards by which true and false prophets were to be judged. They never had to take somebody's word for it. All reception, writing, guarding, translating, interpretation, theology, doctrine, and even application have all taken place under the providence and prescription of God. And none of these things have ever been a solo project. Now, we, this is human nature, but we tend towards individualism. And we tend towards experientialism and we tend toward emotionalism and trying to determine what God has said or what God meant by what He said. But biblical Christianity requires of us a faithful, humble submission to the instruction and correction of a Spirit-filled covenant community which we call the church. The true church filled with Christ's Spirit acting according to Christ's words. The Spirit and the bride confirm the truth of God's Word, and so they respond, Come. We've got it. We've got the truth. We've got the real thing. Come. The revelation in all of Scripture is confirmed, ratified, and sealed to our consciences through the secondary means of ministerial integrity and ecclesiastical authority. God has chosen to convey His Word through men. And He's chosen to preserve and proclaim His Word through His church by the power of His Holy Spirit. Why, why do we believe the Bible? Why do we believe the revelation of Jesus Christ? Why do we believe the things that we see here? Because it's first and foremost God's Word. It comes from God. And it's been brought to us by ministers of the highest order, spiritual and human. And it has been under the Spirit-filled quality control of the Bride of Christ, full of Christ's Spirit, for over 19 centuries. There are a lot of religions that have formed since then. Many of them come and go. Some of them have come and they've stayed. A lot of ideas have come and gone. Theologians have come and they've written volumes and they've died. Churches have been planted. Churches have faded into history. What hasn't changed? The Word of God has not 
changed. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, can you see that God wants you to know Him? He wants that. God has spoken at many times and in many ways, and some of them have caused men to tremble and to fall down as dead and to run away in terror. And yet He's chosen to employ the heavenly hosts to minister His Word to humanity. He's commissioned the angels of heaven. Take my Word. He's chosen our fellow men to bring us His Word in words and languages that we can understand, writing as men with all of the sympathies and all of the weaknesses that exist in all men, and yet no less the Word of God for all of those sympathies. They're right in a way that we can understand and we can, we can agree with. He's given us His church from the first century until now to keep His Word, to preach His Word, to comment on His Word, to articulate His Word, even in the face of great heresies. How many of us would say that right now, according to what we have in our mind, are prepared and ready to combat the Arian heresy in the way that it was brought in the early church? I don't think we have the minds in this room to do that. I'm thankful somebody did. He's done that for us. And then He's given us His church now. This church, this local church. God has given us this group of people to be a useful, loving, patient Quality control, safeguard against each of our personal eccentricities, which might distort the truth. Distort the truth. We, we come in, we, we, we might be all over the place, but we come into a community that can say, Hey, I noticed your way out there. Won't you come right over here a little bit? And then somebody else looks at you and says, Well, I noticed your way over there. Won't you come right over here? And we use the Word of God to, to, to bring one another into closer conformity to the Word of God. And all of this is designed by God. God did it. God wants us to know Him. He doesn't want us to be way out here on these extremes we just heard. He wants us to walk according to what James calls the law of liberty. That's not a, that's not a different law. That's, that's, the, that's the law of God. The perfect law of liberty. There's only one law. God is gracious. He's orchestrated history and people and angels so that we'll know Him. To give us every, all that we can take of who He is. Every, you know, and we, we say this many times. I, I went to His Word and it's just amazing how every time I read through His Word I find something new. I mean, He just pours and pours for all of our life. Every single day He's going to continue to pour revelation of Himself. Revelation of Himself. He's doing that because He wants us to know Him. That is a gracious God. That's a good God who does that for His people. Now, do you believe this book to be the Word of God? Hopefully you'd say, yes, it is the Word of God. Do you believe yourself to be filled with the Spirit of God? If you're a Christian, hopefully you say, yes, I have the Spirit. Now, from what we've just seen, 
What can we deduce is a proper response by the Spirit-filled church who believes in the awesome severity and urgency of the Word of God. What's the response? What, what do the Spirit and the bride say when they say, I can confirm it? They turn and they say, come. They, they, they bring it in, they send it out. Come. They give the universal invitation to all men to come eat and drink of this Christ. We have the prize. We have the treasure. And we want all to come and partake. If we believe the Word of God, both the bad news and the good news of it, then we ought to be found in 2021, we ought to be found as yet another church in another generation, adding another voice of confirmation to that voice of the church from the very beginning and beckoning men and women, boys and girls, come to this Christ. Now, I don't think that we have to limit ourselves necessarily to what we might call formal evangelism in this sense and what our response should be. I think it would follow in in every aspect of God's Word. If we believe that every aspect of it is truly the Word of God, then all of life, all of our practice will be conforming to the truth. There's no greater contradiction than the person who says, well, yeah, I believe that men are sinners, that all men are born naturally sinners because that's what the Word of God says. And I believe that God has intervened into history by sending His Son to live as a substitute and die as a substitute. And He raised His Son on the third day because that's what the Word of God says. And, and I know people all around me who do not know this God because that's what the Word of God says. And then not beckon them to come. Not, they're, they're, that's a contradiction, a walking contradiction. There's no greater contradiction than a person who says, well, I believe that that book is the very Word of the living God, and yet turns away and does not do what it says. Who doesn't live like it is so. That's a contradiction. If God has been so gracious in giving us His Word, do we not also believe that His ways are good? The ways that are described in this book, the, 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 the patterns of life, the things that He calls us to and in our homes and in the workplace and in every area of life, in our private lives, do we not believe if God would be so gracious to come to us every single day and pour Himself out and say, I want you to know me, I want you to know me, I want you to know me, do we not believe that same God would give us very good and gracious ways in which to walk? And then if, if, we, if we believe that, ought we not then to say, well, I'm, I'm going to do what He says. His ways are good and right. Would we not be quick to obey if we truly believe that these were God's words? Every time we're slow to obey, we're we're revealing a little bit of unbelief. I'm not really sure I believe that that's God's Word. If it's God's Word, we live like it is so. So I'll close with this. As As you read your Bible this week, and hopefully you're in the Bible, Daily, as you read your Bible, you finish, before you get up, ask yourself, how can I get up from here and live today like I believe what I just read is the Word of God? Make application. Confession is easy. 
everybody can confess. Application, living it, walking according to it. That's the difficulty. That's where it's going to come into, into a, a very hard friction very often with our own lusts and our own pride and the world in which we live, which is growing increasingly more hostile to biblical Christianity. We, we, we see the, the things all the time that what used to be very normal, plain, mundane living, a wife who keeps her home, a man who works hard, who leads his family spiritually, that's despised. That's hated. That's, that's, that's the enemy. That's how they describe the enemy. We had better be ready and prepared to live like we actually believe this is the Word of God. If we believe it's just the Word of men, then another man could come along and give us another word that, that is just a little more appetizing. And we'll take it. We'll take it. So, so ask yourself, how can I get up and live today like I actually believe what I've just read? That's going to be... Uh, I'd say, if you're reading something like James, very practical, that's going to be pretty easy. You know, James says, you know, uh, walk by faith and put your faith into practice. So I'm going to do that. If you're reading some of the other portions of Scripture, it might take a little bit more uh, mental work to say, what does it mean to put this into practice and to walk by this? But do that work and make the application of the Word. Live like you believe it's actually the Word of God. It is gracious that God has given us His Word. But He's gone even beyond that in giving us a written document, a written word. He's given us the incarnate word, His Son. If we were to try to contemplate some condescension of God, we would say, well, it would have been gracious to God if He revealed to, his, revealed to us some form of His glory like we see in uh, the revelation of God at Mount Sinai or like we see at the opening chapters of Ezekiel. If He did that for all of us, that would be very gracious. And yet, like we do when we walk away from reading those descriptions of God's glory, we would sort of scratch our heads and say, well, that was majestic, but it leaves a lot to be known. And so we might think it would be an even greater condescension if He would just become a creature. Perhaps He could come in some angelic form. Well, that would be gracious of God, and it would show His desire to draw near to us. But we're not angels, we're men. So it would be even more gracious if He would have condescended to become perhaps a human king and would have just built a kingdom on the earth, and we could have all uh, went to view to laud our earthly king, and yet none of us in this room are kings. And so there would still be something left to be uh, desired as far as a sympathy with God. Uh, perhaps he would have just been a very uh, wealthy man. If he would have condescended to just be a, a rich uh, civilian, well, that would be very condescending, and yet most of us are not rich, and we would wonder if he really understood our plight. Um, when we read the Gospels, we see that God has condescended not to be merely a creature or a human king or a wealthy civilian, but He became a, a regular man, a common laborer, more than likely, of a poor and lowly family. And that is a great condescension, that He would walk in the steps of people like us. Uh, but there's one more step of condescension where He could actually reveal Himself in a way that draws near to the place of every human being, rich or poor, king or civilian, man, woman, boy, girl, and that would be to enter into our place in death. Because every person that's born will die. All people will experience death. And that's what He's done. 
When we come to the Lord's table, we are remembering that greatest condescension where God came down to reveal Himself to men at the very the most base level, the, the bottom level of our humanity, which is in our death. That's where we, we show ourselves to be the most human when we die, the most creaturely when we die. And that's what God's done in, in His Son uh, on the cross. That was God incarnate as a man dying in the place of men who deserve to die. Now, we will still die physically unless the Lord returns. But the punitive uh, aspect of that death as a punishment for sins has been absolved in Christ. He's taken that away. Our bodies will grow old and they will wear down and they will be buried in the dust. But it, it will not be as somehow a punishment for sins committed. It will be simply the, the, the recompense for being creatures because Christ has taken that upon Himself. And so as we pass the Lord's, or the elements of the Lord's table and we come to the Lord's Supper, we are giving our attention to that moment where we see God condescending the very most to be displayed before all men, upheld and, and, and lifted up so that all men could see the extent to which God would go to reveal Himself to His creatures. And so as the elements are passed, give your attention to that and, and really worship God for His mercy and His drawing near to us in Christ.